From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Koontz. Hello, everybody. It's Connie Koontz, and you're listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's still February. It's still season one, but it's episode nine. Sharon Nesbitt-Davis is right here with me in the Shumway studio. Hello, Sharon Nesbitt-Davis. Hello, Connie. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for... Thanks for inviting me again. <laughs> it is our pleasure and our honor. I really mean that. Mm, please you. please tell us what you're going to be reading today. This is the story of when I actually first laid eyes on George, my mm-hmm. husband. It is 1970, and I am 18. I just graduated from high school. It's the summer before I'm going to college. Okay. Listeners, we're in 1970. And are we still in Quincy? This is Quincy, yes. Okay, it's still Quincy. It's 1970. She's getting ready to go to college. Here we go. This is my last summer before going away to college. My oldest brother, John, is home and has become a Baha'i. He read the book Brother Benedict bought me at the temple and looked up the Baha'is at the U of I. He joined last spring and told my parents over the phone. Mother ran into the bathroom and cried, and Dad ranted for days about what a mistake it's been to send this boy to college. He's dumber now than he was when he left. I am not close to John. He is four years older And growing up, I was scared of him. He and Roger had terrible fights. John teased Roger, and I joined in so John didn't turn against me. John is different now. He talks with Roger and me and asks us what we think. If he disagrees with me, he doesn't call me stupid. He still tries to win when we play cards, but he doesn't try to destroy us. He smiles more. John invited me to a Baha'i meeting in town, and I go with him. The people remind me of the smiling man at the temple. My mother is worried I'm going to become one, but I won't. I'm not so sure about God, and there's a law I don't like. You have to get your parents' consent to get married, regardless of how old you are. John says it's because the faith is about unity, and that starts with the family. I tell my mother, no offense but I would never want to have to ask for your blessing to get married. Mom nods. I'm not happy about that either. My brother invites me to a Baha'i meeting at the Frederick Douglass Community Center. A college choir is performing. They're from Illinois State and Illinois Wesleyan in Bloomington Normal. John smiles and waits for my answer. I know what he is trying to do. This fall, I'm going to Illinois State University, and it's scary because none of my friends are coming with me. John wants to give me Baha'i friends. I have to waitress on Sunday. What time? I get off at 1 o'clock. The meeting starts at 2. John grins. On Sunday, the restaurant is busy, and I stay longer to help. It is almost 2 o'clock when I get home. I look at the kitchen clock and feel sick in my gut. 
I run upstairs and change clothes. My mother looks up from her recipe book as I run out the door. I thought you weren't going to any more Baha'i meetings. I won't stay long. I don't explain why I changed my mind. Because the truth will make me look as crazy as I feel. Something is pushing me there. I have the floaty feeling and watch myself drive, park, and enter the building where the meeting is. The meeting has started already, and there is a small choir on a platform singing. The only vacant chair is in the front row. I stand at the back, and a man points to the empty seat. I shake my head, but he won't stop pointing. Now others turn to look. I walk around the edge, eyes down to avoid the grinning face of my brother. The choir is singing, and as I sit down, a deep, clear voice rises above the others. I look up and see a young man with a large afro, his gold wire rim glasses contrast against his dark brown skin. I hear the voice inside say, this is the man you will marry. For the rest of the meeting, I watch this young man. He listens to the speaker and jots notes in a small spiral notebook. His laughter is immediate when the speaker makes a joke. At the end of the meeting, the young man is asked to chant a prayer. Everyone else bows their heads, but I watch as he lifts his hands and offers his prayer. Afterwards, I find him with my friend Natalie, who's getting his address. I want to kick her. Fast work, Natalie. My voice is shrill and awful. He frowns, and Natalie says, I'm going to write to him. I want to know more about his religion. She flashes her huge smile at him and winks at me. I cannot think of anything to say, so I stand and listen while Natalie talks to him. His name is George, and he's a theater major and a singer. He was born and raised in Chicago. That night, I climb out my bedroom window, sit on the roof, look up at the stars, and sing, Good night, my someone. But this time, I see a face, and I know his name. We finally get to meet George. You do. It's yes. wonderful. Yes. What a reward. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're the welcome. suspense was was quite killing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in nineteen seventy. We are. You have a job. You're at a restaurant. What was your what was your job? I was a waitress. It was my first job ever and that I actually got money for. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was actually at a Walgreens. They had a grill. And so I worked there in high school. Okay. Tell me about the people you worked with. They were primarily high school students, but there was uh, the manager. Certainly was um, was a male. Was a male manager. <laughs> okay, I think I understand. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, 
Well, it was my first experience as um, we've had the Me Too, and that was I actually wrote about that on Facebook because that manager did make us girls go into his office one by one to pick up our paycheck mm-hmm. and would look at us and he'd ask when we were returning 18 and things like that and just give us the once over kind of thing and we would talk about it on break and the oldest uh wait there was an, uh, an older waitress who i'm at the time i thought she was really really old i'm sure she was not all that old <laughs> but at the time <laughs> right she just looked really quite old but she mm-hmm. she said oh there'll be a day that you'll miss this he mm-hmm. doesn't do this to me anymore and I just thought that was terribly sad. And I thought, no, I will never miss this. And it's true, I do not miss this. Yeah. So I agree. Um, is this the first time you realize that you cannot trust every man that crosses your path, even if he is in a position of authority? When did you become wise to that? I would say understanding that was really more even, even before that. There was the incidents when I was in third grade where there was this man that was going around trying to get young girls to go into his car Mm -hmm. and I was one of the girls that he tried to do that with and that did not happen and I became aware then to be a little careful Um, but my parents even then didn't give me a, a real straight talk about it I didn't know why exactly there was just that feeling that there was something a bit wrong mm-hmm. with that. Um, that. That's what I want to touch on, right. is you are so open at age mm-hmm. 5, at age 10, and now at age 18, mm-hmm. and we also see you at age 11. Mm-hmm. You're so open, and you meet so many people, and you have such a wide range of friends and adults in your life, mm-hmm. and you're positive, but you also are smart. You're also wise. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about why you think you were wise at such a young age, how you knew to take care of yourself. Um, okay. I, I am not, I'm not sure. Looking back, I see that I've made some mistakes that were not, I would not consider myself necessarily wise. I think I was, I really was trusting of people more than I perhaps should have been. But I think I was really fortunate that there were people in my life that were fairly trustworthy people. Mm-hmm. My father was just a wonderful, wonderful man, mm-hmm. and I, I trust I could trust him, and and I think that really gave me a really good base. Um, but I think going into college, I was not prepared for that. But mm-hmm. that's that's in later chapters mm-hmm. <laughs> that you'll you see that. Um, but I think there was a sense that, again, that feeling that I was not alone, that I always did have that feeling, even when I would find myself in some situations that were not good. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I was able to get back to a good place inside of myself because of feeling that I was not alone. Thank so. You. I think that was perhaps what was protecting me. Okay. I want to know how George made it to Quincy. What brought him there? Who, how did this connection happen? The, what I understand, and 
You know, that's a, actually a, a question we haven't really discussed too much. Uh, I know the, that this this choir that was formed mm-hmm. of students that were at Illinois Wesleyan and Illinois State, and they were all Baha'i youth, they had formed a singing group, and so they were invited to come and sing. My guess is that one of the um, members of the Baha'i community in Bloomington, her mother and father lived in Quincy, mm-hmm. and they were Baha'is that lived here, and or not here, lived in Quincy. See, mm-hmm. I'm back in Quincy right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, I'm, I'm guessing that they helped to, that they're the ones that put that together. Mm-hmm. And my brother, because he was home for the summer and going to meetings with them, knew that that was happening, and. He, again, he, he just, I know at one point he told me in the summer, he said, I, I know that this is what you will eventually become or something mm-hmm. like that. He said, you were born to be a Baha'i. And I'm like, just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was a little bit of that sibling kind of thing going on. Oh, I understand. Um, yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, what did George think, and what does he still think, of Quincy? From Chicago. <laughs> you know, when um, eventually, of course, when we did get married and would go there, he found it the most relaxing place. For, and I think partly my mother ended up just always making sure that she had the ice cream that he loved mm-hmm. and uh, would just make it really comfortable for him. He still loves so, ice cream. Oh, right? he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's an ice cream guy. Mm-hmm. But he... Um, he really loved the relaxed feeling that he had in my parents' house and would refer to Quincy as the magical, wonderful world of Quincy, which was more about the stories I would tell. I mean, it was kind of a, a joking kind of a thing. But he liked coming to my house that was very quiet, very subdued. And I liked going to his house in Chicago, which was wild and crazy and and to me just Mm -hmm. lots of fun just lots of people in and out lots of noise lots of laughter and um, sitting down at a meal with his family just didn't even happen you were standing you were you know people were you know sitting with plates on their laps and people were walking in and out getting plates and this and that where my family was very subdued no Mm -hmm. one spoke while you ate Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing so he actually enjoyed the the calm of my house, and I enjoyed the chaos of his. So what is your house culture now? Do you have a calm, <laughs> subdued, or is it a little bit more, uh, everybody's coming um, in and out? Well, you know, it really depends, of course, on who's around. But when my daughter and grandkids and, um, and you know, sometimes it is very loud, like, our Thanksgiving, our son was, was here with his wife and three kids, and, and Bahia was there and, you know, with their kids. And we ended up all just in this in the living room and had, like, lap trays, and it was just a lot of um, fun chaos. And, yeah, so that's, that's what we do. I love it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> How about George? What does he think of that? You know, he just loves being a grandpa, mm-hmm. and uh, he's very easygoing. So he really pretty much just plays along and goes along with it. And um, I I think he, he um, you know, he's just the guy that just makes sure that everybody 
is okay, and he cleans up afterwards. No, he? <laughs> he's, he's really, yes, he's good at that. Right. Yeah. Um, what did George, I know what you thought of Natalie, but what did George think of Natalie? You know, she she actually did not follow through with um, writing to him. Okay. And I'll, I think he, I don't know if he really thought that she was interested in the Baha'i faith. I, I know that she was just interested in him because mm-hmm. I know Natalie. And mm-hmm. <laughs> she was just trying to find, find her man. But um, Where is she now? I actually have lost contact, oh, so okay. I'm not really sure. I think she went to college out in Colorado. Oh, really? But, um, but I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Lost contact with most of those high school friends. Okay. What is something that you would like to tell us about George that you haven't said yet, that you haven't told us hmm. or shared with us? Wow. Um, well, of course, there's a lot that I've written in the book, but... Um, <laughs> Lately, we, we've had this joke, kind of a joke, where, you know, I would say, I love you, and he'd say, I love you more. But now we do this, okay, I'll say, I love you, he'll say, I love you more, and I say, ah, but I wrote the book. Oh. So that's our, <laughs> that she is our talked. new, I, I have, <laughs> yes, so I, I will lay claim to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, I don't know that I would say that the things that I fell in love with him about, uh, it's still there. It's it grows if if nothing else. It just he's just a solid. He's just a solid good good person. So yeah. All right. Well, I need to know more. Okay. Um, there are only four Mondays in February, but I am going to make a proposal, and that is that we do a bonus episode. Wow, sure. And maybe we could get Mr. George Davis in the studio for a little bit. <laughs> we can certainly try. Get him on the mic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ask him a couple questions. Okay. So, Sharon, please, could you come back for another podcast? Yes. Share another chapter, talk a little mm-hmm. more, and um, could you help me reach out to your husband and see if he'll come join us, too? We will make that attempt together, Connie. All right. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Connie. See you in a week. All right. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, The Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Coots. Thank you for listening. Now go write. Hey, Dan, what are you doing? Checking my calendar. Looks like a big day is coming up. Oh, which one? Saturday, March 3rd. That's National I Want You to Be Happy Day. (laughs) That shouldn't be too hard. The Midwest is beautiful in March. All that brown, all that gray. Not to mention the fact that the Guilty Pleasures podcast is featuring a new author. Who? Dan Libman. The Dan Libman? Yes, he'll be reading from his book Married But Looking and will share new work too. Oh, that's enough to make me happy for the whole month of March. Why are you crying, Connie? Because I'm so happy. Get happy with the new Guilty Pleasures podcast. Listen for free at any time. Until then, go right.